0: Hello and welcome to Actuarial People, with myself, James Turner. I'm excited to be launching a brand new podcast where each week, I'll be speaking with the UK Actuary. My aim is to give you, the listener, greater insight into the people behind the profession and their personal career journeys. So we'll cover things like why and how they became an actuary, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how they balance work and study with life, any specialisms they've developed, and how their role has evolved over time. So whether you're an actuary yourself, or you're aspiring to become one in the future, welcome and enjoy. Welcome to Actuarial People, Chris Anderson.
1: Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? Yeah, very well, thank you. You, I've just been getting over a a bit of COVID, so I was a bit worried earlier in the week that I wouldn't be able to do this, but thankfully feeling much better today.
0: Uh, good, good. Glad to hear it. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me. I've been looking forward to to spending some time with you. We'll come on to your sort of journey to date in a second. But I wondered if you could begin by giving a, a brief overview of what you do today, and then we'll work backwards from there.
1: Yeah, great. So I am a director in the life insurance team at EY. Uh, I'm an actuary by background and I've been at EY for nine years now. And before that, I spent five years working for Standard Life before it became part of the the Phoenix Group. So a a bit of time in industry. My focus today is mostly on the bulk annuity market. So the pension risk transfer market, where I support on the insurance side. So I've been supporting uh, all of the providers across that market to do a wide variety of things. I tend to focus on strategy and proposition stuff. So um you know things like operating model the type of products that you sell how you sell them um, and particularly helping new entrants as well try and try and get into that market and 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 so we should be seeing one or two of those hopefully over the next year or two and maybe we can talk about that a bit later but that's that's what i focus on uh these days fantastic well um look forward
0: to getting stuck into to some of that in a sec and um, we'll start where i always do which is could you cast your mind back and uh i wonder if you can tell us when you first discovered that actuaries existed
1: Uh, yeah so in my high school we had a career service and they one of the sessions that they carried out with us when I was about probably 14 13 14 was they they brought in a piece of software called pathfinder which was a like a personality test and you would answer a lot of questions about your likes and dislikes and strengths and weaknesses and things and it would suggest careers that might be well suited to you and uh, the number one career for me actually was marine biologist, at which point I should have put I should have probably just put the software in the bin because I, like, I, could, <laughs> I could quite happily go the rest of my life without being anywhere near the sea. But uh, uh, number two was actuary, and I would never heard of it at that time. Didn't know what actuary was. And so that started the journey for me of, of learning about what an actuary is and, and adding it to my to my list of possible sort of career paths. Um, so that, that was the first time I'd heard of it. Okay. What was number three out of interest? Uh number 3 was a stockbroker I think. Okay. Which, which which is more reasonable. It fits the theme of sort of, you know, mathematics and finance and things which were the kind of areas that I was strongest in at school. Um, so that that made a lot more sense that one. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 then where did you go from there? So that's when you
0: decided what to pursue at university, is it?
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean it, it didn't jump straight up to number 1. I still wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after that. I had a I had a few options. Um, I think by the time I was kind of applying for university, I had, I, I was applied for law at Edinburgh, uh, actuarial science at Heriot-Watt University, and I think physics at St. Andrews. And again, the career, I mean, the career service at our school was great. They arranged for me to, to sort of meet up with a couple of people who were, who were doing careers in those areas. So I had spoke to a lawyer and spoke to an actuary and, um, the actuary was the one who, out of the sort of three or four that I spoke to, was the one that sounded like they actually enjoyed their job and that they were doing, you know, they, they, they were doing things that were pretty interesting. The lawyer the lawyer, sounded like he absolutely hated his life. I'm sure that's not indicative of all lawyers, but the, the particular one they had me speak to was didn't seem massively pleased with what he was up to. And uh that the physicists, the sort of physicist type career was I mean, again, they probably there was a wide range of things I'm sure they could have picked, but they they ended up passing me on to, to academics who were doing sort of theoretical research and things. And while that was sort of interesting, it, it I, I kind of wanted to do something that was a bit more like real world and, and out with um out, out sort of in, in finance or or, or, or with, with 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 that sort of area. So I ended up choosing natural science degree at Harriet Watt. But even then, I'd, I'd say like I'd spoken to one actuary and I'd read, you know, a page on the careers website about what they were. So I, I went into that course without really a full understanding of what I actually did. And I would say probably even into two or three years into my career before I, I really got what the actuarial role was. Um, so, I, yeah, it's a bit of a weird kind of, journey into the into the into the unknown I suppose without without a full background I just knew that actually seemed to make quite a bit of money and we're good at maths and I, I sort of liked money and liked maths so I, was, I was kind of keen to pursue it for a bit and see what it was like yeah
0: fair enough sounds like a good decision and I noticed you had a couple of internships which were on the pension side so these days you work in life insurance but you had a little bit of a taste of pensions valuations that kind of thing with a couple of firms
1: yeah that's right so I did a I did an internship. Uh, with buck consultants in London and then another internship with what was called Watson Wyatt at the time which is now uh, Willis-Towers Watson Um, and then an internship with Standard Life and I I enjoyed all my internships I I, I really liked the types of work that I was doing and the people that I was working with the the reason why I ended up selecting Standard Life for a graduate role wasn't there wasn't anything to do with the type of work I wasn't I didn't really see it as me picking life insurance over pensions it was just that Standard Life at that time was one of the the biggest actuarial recruiters in Edinburgh, uh, which was the city that I wanted to stay in, and uh, so they they were taking on something like twelve new graduates, and they had a huge pool of graduates in the kind of years above. So there was this big community of people who were going through the same sort of things. You know, at any one time there might be five to ten people doing the same exams you were, and. You know, even for the social side, there was always people having nights out or or social clubs, or, you know, sports and things. So it just felt like a better community to try and qualify, whereas um, Buck and, and Towers in, in, in Edinburgh were, were a lot smaller. So, you know, I might have been one of only a couple of students and, and would have had less of that that community. So th- that was the reason why I ended up choosing Standard Life rather than rather than sort of the, you know, the work specifically. But um, yeah, so I, I, I had a bit of experience of of I guess, both sides at that time uh, before before
0: gradu- before graduating. Yeah. And then when you started at Standard Life, how can you remember your first sort of few months there when you were getting a, a feel for what it was all about in a bit more detail?
1: Yeah. And I had a really interesting role to start off, actually, because, the I mean, at Standard Life, they had the, I'm sure they still do within Phoenix, but they had the graduate ro- rotation program. So you would spend maybe something like 12 to 24 months in a team and then, and then move on and do something else. So the, the first team that I went into was the business planning team. So it was about taking the actuarial results of the company, so the, which was the kind of Solvency 1 results back then, and doing a bit of a business plan forecast. So based on how much we think we're gonna sell, what do we think our expense base is gonna be, all the initiatives we're gonna do, what does our balance sheet look like for the next five years? and, um, and, And then that would help the business to make decisions. So I got a really good understanding of how the company worked at a total level you know how all the products fit together and and how they made money yeah and then helping the business to decide well should we invest in this new product or take this expense initiative or something and you know how that would feed through the results so that was um yeah i really enjoyed that role and i you know i, f- I found that i'd sort of landed in, in an interesting place and i was yeah was working towards my actuarial qualification, so i was kind of sitting exams and yeah and I, I, I definitely enjoyed that first placement in the first 12 months
0: yeah how how did you find fitting in exams? Because I, I think I read that you had a, f- a first-class degree in actuarial science, so you must have had a fair few exemptions to to get you started, or was that the case?
1: Yeah, so when I started, uh, we'd, we'd had exemptions from, I know the exams have changed recently, but I had exemptions from the kind of technical exams. And so I started off with uh, the big risk management one. I'm not, I can't remember what that's called now. It was called CA1 back then. Um, and so that, that was my first exam that I had to sit professionally if you like outside of university uh and it was it was difficult i suppose because you're going from an environment where at university you're being spoon-fed the material on a weekly basis and 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 given things on a regular cadence to then in the professional setting where they you know they basically give you the books and they say right we'll see you in six months for the exam and you might get three or four tutorials or something on the way through but there's you know there's much more emphasis on you having to manage your own time and manage your way through the material at at, at the right pace. And like for those who have done that exam or are doing that now, you'll know like how massive that, that one exam is. So it's quite hard to work out exactly how quickly should I be getting through these materials and and trying to fit that alongside work. Um, So yeah, it was a bit difficult initially. I, I think I got the balance all right. I mean, I was, I was quite lucky in the team that I was in. We never really had such a massive peak of work that I couldn't take my study day. So I was getting the regular weekly study day and I was quite good at using those and going going out and sort of making time each week to, to actually get through some material. And I sort of tried to use the, I remember we had the tutorials and in advance they would they would sort of tell you what chapters they were going to cover in the tutorials. So I used that to set my goals to say, all right, well, the tutorial, the first tutorial is in six weeks and they're going to cover the first 12 chapters. So I'm going to do two chapters a week and, and try and tackle it that way. So that helped me set a bit of a a sort of, um, plan to get through the information uh, uh yeah it seemed to work and I, I was only I was lucky in that I only ever had I did sort of one exam at a time so I know that's even more difficult for some people who are having to balance two or three exams and especially the technical ones and, and try and work out how to balance those off against each other but because I was sort of straight into the later ones that are quite big I just did one at a time and that that helped me in a way because I could just focus on one topic yeah yeah
0: okay fine and in ter- if we go back to the the role so you spend- was it a couple of years on the sort of business forecasting team, the planning team? And then because of the rotation scheme, did you have to rotate out or you wanted to experience something else after a couple of years? Uh,
1: I don't think you got an option at that time, actually. I think you had to rotate when when your sort of time to rotate came up. So I I think I spent 18 months there. Then I moved into the uh, the sort of capital planning team, which was... Uh, I guess much more traditionally, actuarial, it was looking at. So, you you know, you would run your big, accurate solvency calculations maybe once every six months because they were a really complex, uh, you know, messy model that would take quite a long time to get an answer out of. And the capital planning team was trying to effectively forecasts in between those six monthly periods like where were we so what is our what is our solvency likely to be now that we're one month later so you would you would do things like look at how the economics had moved you would look at how much new business had come in all of these types of things and you would try and roll forward your your solvency position on a monthly month by month basis um, to help the business again make decisions to to understand where they were so that was a that was an interesting team. The other big thing that we did in that team was we we sort of set the value of the dividend. So we worked out how much of a dividend that could be paid each year based on the on the, uh, the the solvency position that we had and and the the excess over that. So that was an interesting team. I spent eighteen months there as well, and then rotated into my I guess my final rotation. I, and at that time, I sort of qualified was uh, the the sort of platform pricing team. So way at standard life had a had a platform available for financial advisors so where you know it's, it's kind of like a, and this this, this shouldn't really seem like a, a a you know a big in ingenious thing but like it was at the time back then for financial advisors because they didn't really have this but for a financial advisor it's sometimes quite difficult to see like for a customer, all of their products in the one place and how they all fit together and, you know, get a kind of single view of like how much, if your customer has five or six different products, you know, how do they all, what, what are their values and and kind of, can I get access to all that information easily, or do I have to go to, you know, six different companies or six different dashboards and and pull all that information out. So the, the, the wrap platform at standard life was to try to bring together all the customer's products into one place. And it also harmonised the charges, so the advisor would get like a single charge for the customer that that for the use of that platform and 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 have it all in the, in the single place. So, our job in that team was to price price that business for for the advisor. So, advisor would come to us and say, "Hey, I've got X hundred million pounds of customers. I want assets. I want to move them onto your platform. What kind of deal would you give me?" And so we were sort of running um, you know, deal models to look at, you know, how valuable is this advisor, how valuable is their customers to us, how much of a discount can we give them? How badly do we want this business? So that was great because it was a really sort of commercial team. And we also moved into a little bit of MA. So we 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 were looking at potential kind of targets for Standard Life to buy things like financial advisors or, or other bits of the value chain that we had at that time so I got to see a bit of MA through that team as well so um yeah re- three really really interesting placements I enjoyed I enjoyed them all and they were all quite different and I learned sort of different things about about the actuarial world through each one.
0: I spend a lot of time speaking with pensions actuaries and less time speaking with life actuaries um I'm interested in how the career progression aspect felt because you've you've worked on three different teams did it feel like you're almost starting again every every two years and learning something fresh or was there also a sense of getting more senior as you went towards qualification hi guys we'll get straight back to the conversation in a second just a quick reminder that when i'm not recording podcasts i specialize in helping pensions actuaries with their career moves and i'd love to help you when the time comes to explore your options i work with people at all levels whether you have a couple of years experience through to senior positions my approach is different to most recruiters I started my own business last year and work alone, which means I have zero pressure to hit targets and can just focus on giving the best possible help and advice. So whether you're thinking of making a move now, or would just like to understand your options for the future, please get in touch via LinkedIn or email james at turnerperkins.com. Back to the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't feel like I was getting more senior, I don't think. I felt like I was getting more knowledgeable. I was definitely learning more and and broadening the types of knowledge that I had across the whole business. But the way that it would typically work at that time on the Standard Life graduate program and, you know, others might have done things differently was that you were effectively a sort of analyst until you qualified and then you became, you know, an actuary. And when you were qualified, you were then able to take more senior responsibilities. So you might be able to kind of look after a team uh or, or or move up into more sort of managerial type roles and because i didn't actually spend much time post qualified in standard life i never got to that position where i was i was running teams so i was always in the sort of analyst role when i was there and just um a doer if you like and, and and delivering some of the some of the tasks and reports and things that needed to be done um but typically what would have happened is once you qualify you would then look to Move up to a position of you know leading maybe graduates or other people who are kind of then becoming in the analyst role to deliver a lot of the work, and you sort of progress up through that way. So, um, yeah, there is there, there, the 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 different. I guess the difference you know thinking now into consultancy, which is where I where I've spent most of my career now, um, in life insurance, you, you there, the, the it's can sometimes be difficult to kind of foster a career path, and sometimes you have to move sideways because what you're always looking at is each team will have a team lead and that team lead might be there for quite a long time. And that might be your next progression. So if that person stays there for, you know, several years, you don't get an opportunity to directly move up ahead of where you are. So you might have to move across to a different team, doing something slightly different, but where there is a leadership opportunity available and you can navigate your way almost zigzag through the company as you move up. And I've seen some of my, some of my friends and, and the colleagues that I had at that time do that. And so they, they can pop up in very different teams. and and move their way around the business which is good I think you know that they they get the opportunity to to see a lot of different things um as they move to to more senior levels whereas in consultancy where I am now you can you know that it's it's easier to just almost move straight up through the grades because um because of the way that we structure our teams and the the structure of the projects
0: in the example you gave if you're in a team and there's a head of and that person's either not going anywhere or, or or there'll be a moment where they move and there's an opportunity to move up does that impact the relationship with your peers if if you're one of a few people at the same level do you feel as though you're competing against them or is that
1: not really a, a thing uh I think it well yeah I think it does I mean the you know I've, I've I mean I've seen that quite recently actually that, that in in one of my clients where there was a you know a few people going for a role that was that was one level up and then when it was announced you know the, the other people who were going for that position and didn't get it are now sort of almost in a not maybe not a career crisis moment but they are now sort of thinking well what do I do now because you don't want to stay where you are right so you you're you're looking for your next step and that that step that you were you were you had your sights focused on has now been taken away so you have to find something else so um yeah that I, I think in some day, in some cases it can get quite competitive uh, and I have seen that I've not had that firsthand because like I say I sort of left that environment before I got senior enough for that to really be a problem for me, where before I was sort of competing with others for those types of roles. Um and it, there is there is a bit less of that at EY where I work um now. But um yeah, it it definitely can. And I've seen it within clients that, that that can become a problem if there's if there's multiple people who are who've got their sort of sights set on on one role that might become available.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Fine. So you you qualify, you're at standard
0: life, obviously something happens then prompt you to consider making a move and and ultimately you moved into consultancy what what was your thought process do you remember what started you thinking about exploring options and anything in particular that that put consulting on the on the radar
1: yeah I was just I mean I was like mid 20s at that time and I'd, I'd worked for one company I'd worked in sort of two or three teams and I just felt like I hadn't really sort of seen much of well, I guess the world but I hadn't, I hadn't really seen much of the industry or all of the different challenges and things that actuaries could could sort of get involved in um i was also going through a little bit of a you know is an actuary really the thing that i want to be uh, i don't know if you want to call it like an early life crisis or something but i'd sort of spent all this time trying to qualify as an actuary and the actuarial work i, I kind of wasn't enjoying that much so the the, the sort of you know the bits that you call traditional actuarial work like modeling or you know understanding data or you know those types of things i just it wasn't really for me. And that was becoming quite a lot of my job. And so I just I thought, well, maybe I should try and explore and see what else is out there and try and work out whether it's maybe it's just this job or maybe it is the career in total, but I should try and find something that gives me a bit more breadth and see if I can find something that I, I do hook onto and that I like. And so the idea of going to consultancy was to to just see a lot more companies, maybe even see more countries, um, uh, see more problems, you know, just, just get a a bigger variety across the next few years of my career. And with a view that, okay, maybe I'll find the thing that I I really want to do and that that I like doing. Um, so there was, there was nothing against standard life, you know, I I mean, I I, I enjoyed my time there. I just felt like I, I wanted to see a bit more variety to, because I felt like there must be something that I would, I would really, really, really enjoy. And I just wanted to find it. Um, and so, and it wasn't, you know, I, I didn't specifically look to move to EY. Uh, I applied to a, a, a few different consultancies at the time, but um, EY, just I got a—I got a really positive feeling from them through the interview processes. I felt like the people that I, I just connected with the people that I had the interviews with, um, we got on really well. Uh, they seemed like they were in a very good place and that were growing in Edinburgh. And so uh, I decided to go and, and move there and, and try that.
0: Fantastic, and this was—you would have joined what end of 2014, beginning of 2015—and you're you're still there, so it was obviously a very good decision.
1: It was, yeah. I mean, I mean, never say never, right? I might have enjoyed something even more, but I do, I, you know, I don't think many people get to say it, but I do actually love my job. Um, I really like what I'm doing, and the I guess we can talk about why that is, but um, EY, EY is just the team that we're in is a fantastic place to work, and yeah, I'm not, don't have any intentions of leaving yet. It's all, it's been interesting enough to to keep me here for nine years and I'm sure there'll be I'm sure there'll be continued sort of challenges and opportunities that will keep me here for a while longer yeah
0: so so tell us about consulting on the life side um, because there must be some differences I would have thought between what pensions consultants do and what you do as a consultant on the life side for for example I I don't know if this is true or not but I've always wondered if I mean you you were qualified by the time you joined, but if people are part qualified in a life consultancy, how much consulting are they doing versus being more of a technical resource to sort of be deployed on clients if that makes sense? Um how much consulting is there, and does that change as you get more experience?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. I mean the some people who are more junior, so you know new new entrants into the company, new graduates and and part qualified. They are definitely much more in the, you know, delivery mode. And they're also, but they they do get exposure to consulting, but it would be more as a sort of, shadowing or support you know so there would okay. be someone who would be leading a relationship or or leading a conversation with a client and as 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 someone sort of i guess at that level part qualified you would get to come in and listen to that conversation maybe contribute to that conversation but you'd be supporting someone who is who's is more senior and be leading and, and leading it um, but it's a it's a pretty smooth transition so the idea is that by the time you become a qualified actuary you've had enough exposure to those situations that you can then start to lead client conversations and and start to then you know actually do a consulting role um but yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't be expected to sort of own a client relationship or own a conversation like that you know as as a sort of your know, part qualified actuary it would be although if you know if you demonstrate that capability and and you're willing to and you know people have sort of confidence and trust in you you definitely can um but it's yeah it's much more likely that it's sort of once you're qualified you then get those opportunities and you can you can start to build out networks and things mm-hmm. so how was it for you when you first started first time in that sort of environment it was really difficult really difficult yeah I thought I I actually for the first six months I thought I'd made a bad bad decision and uh the the reason for that was just I think that I think the main thing was and this is nothing again there's nothing against standard life in this um but I suppose at standard life I was never really pushed to Communicate well, I suppose, because most of the things you were writing in Standard Life were, you know, reports that had been written previously, and you were effectively just updating them for that year. And most of it you were writing for other actuaries who were in the company and knew the company, so you know the the kind of requirement to. Explain things well, I suppose, wasn't as necessary because people already had a very good understanding of things, and most of the time you had templates and stuff to work from where you were, you you know, someone had done it before and you could just update it. But when you're thrown in a consultant environment, you 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 know, most of the time when you're producing something, you're producing something that hasn't been written before. It will be a brand new paper. It might be on a totally new topic. It might be a, a client you're not familiar with at all, and that sort of how to message things, how to how to understand how a message should be delivered and set a story out in a slide pack or in a Word document or something from a blank piece of paper was totally new to me and I was not good at it uh, and I had to learn very, very fast. And because I'd, because I'd come in as a qualified actuary as well, I'd come in at a, at a senior enough level, you know, I was a sort of manager grade within Ui, where you're expected to be able to do those things. So it, it wasn't like it was a nice safe space for me to, you know, learn and grow and make mistakes, I was kind of, you know, I was expected to be able to sort of, you know, handle that sort of thing and deliver good messaging. And so I had to, I had to learn very, very quickly and, and I made lots of mistakes early on and, and learned from those and tried to get sort of coaching and help from others. But, you know, coming through the end of it, it's made me a massively, a much, much better communicator. Like I I, I probably learned more about communication in the first year or so at EY than I had in, you know, my whole previous career and, and up to that point um just because of the, you know, being forced to 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 go onto that steep bit of learning curve and 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 deliver things like that. So yeah, it was very difficult. I felt I felt quite exposed for the first 12 months. I, I came from an environment where, you know, I thought I was technically quite uh, good. You know, I'd learned lots of stuff over four or five years. I, you know, I knew a lot about a company. So I was I was fairly competent and capable. I could do most things probably in that company that I'd been asked to do on a delivery level to going into this new world of like Companies, problems and things that I'd never seen before and then not really having the the skills at the right level to deliver on it and having to just pick that up really fast but um yeah I got there in the end but it was a tough tough first year yeah is there anything you would have done differently
0: or if let's say someone else is about to make the same move as you is there anything you would advise them to do in their first couple of months to maybe make that transition
1: more smooth uh, I think it's probably just I think trying to find Sort of friendly coaches and things early is helpful. You know, pe- people who are a bit invested in you doing well and and being able to deliver and are happy to support you in doing that. I mean, it took me a bit of time to find those to to find those coaches, and once I had them, and once I had people who were, you know, I knew they wanted to help me and that they wanted me to do well and that they would sort of make time to support me. That was what made the big difference. Um, so yeah, I think just trying to find those connections really early is is probably the biggest thing to do to help. Okay we' will
0: talk about the specifics of what you do workwise in a in a bit, but more broadly speaking i'm interested in the career progression so you joined as a manager you're now a director you you head the life office for for scotland um was that always your plan sort of going the people management direction
1: uh no not really and i've never um i've never i don't know if this is a you know different to other people in in these situations but I've never really had much of a long-term plan so I didn't I didn't come into EY thinking I want to be a partner or I want to be director or I want to head the Scotland team or anything like that it was never a sort of I've never looked ahead more than probably a year or 18 months so what, what I tend to do is look at do I enjoy what I'm doing now does it tick the boxes that I want I want it to tick and then I look at you know the sort of the next thing. And and it's kind of what is the next opportunity that I could aim for, and and then if I like the look of that, I'll I'll start setting a plan in place to move to that next step. So, yeah, yeah. So when I came in as a manager, to be honest, the the main thing was was looking at the senior managers who was the, who were the next grade above me and saying, does that look like something that I want to do? If that's something that I want to do, and I think I can do it. How do I get there? And then putting a a bit of a plan in place to get the senior manager. And then once I got senior manager, it was then about director. And then the director, you know, as, as about the same sort of time as I was going through the senior manager grades, the opportunity came up where... The, the head of the Scotland team was was going to be retiring and and we knew that sort of a couple of years out and so then again it was is that is that an opportunity that I think I'd like to pursue uh, and if so how do I get there and 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 so I decided that that was something I wanted to aim for um so yeah I've never I've never really had this kind of long term trajectory it's const- it's just looking at I don't know the next shiny thing on on the path and is it something that I want to I want to chase after or not
0: job titles mean different things in different companies could you give us a feel for in your view the difference between a manager senior manager director and so on
1: yeah so and to be honest they can they can mean a lot of different things within ey as well <laughs> um, there's there's not like a single job description but in general a manager would be someone who is looking after one project so they would typically have you know they'd have one main focus they might have a couple of projects in in, in practice but you'd normally be running one piece of work and you might have a few uh, junior people supporting you to deliver that project you might also be owning some uh some client conversations through that project so you might be the lead contact day-to-day with a client uh, to support them through their problems you might be starting to do bits of business development so um you know going out with more senior people to talk about opportunities and talk about you know going i don't know meet a cfo for lunch and have a bit of a chat about what their problems are and, and think trends in the market but you'd be sort of supporting others to do that uh, as you move up to senior manager, you then, you, the distinction becomes, you'd either run more complex projects. So you might have one project that's very complicated, you know, with multiple work streams and multiple things. And you'd have sort of managers and teams underneath running bits. Or you might have a portfolio of projects. So you might be across sort of three or four different, different projects at any one time. Uh, and you would then probably be then... Leading the client relationships and on, on on the business development side, so you might actually be going speaking directly to to people about um, uh, 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 those sorts of conversations around opportunities, you know, issues they're having, you know, solutions that EY could bring. Um, as you move into director, uh, it becomes you know the, the the focus just tilts again more towards business development and away from delivery. So most of the time when I'm doing delivery now, it tends to be. Um, reviewing things or helping kind of set initial direction i'm not typically involved that much in the day-to-day anymore um i'm used more as a kind of support or a coach as as, as teams move through things um and i'm much more out in trying to take a whole, like maybe a whole solution. So for example, me running the bulk annuities consulting work that we do. So I'm responsible for that whole solution and taking that out to the market and, and all of the work that we do across the market in that area. Um, you can also be responsible for like an entire client at that area, at that, at that level as well. So maybe one insurance company or one part of an insurance company, a sort of director might, might own that whole relationship and make sure that they're getting everything that they need from EY overall. Uh, and then the level above that is, is partner and partners are the ones who take the ultimate responsibility for what, what we deliver. So they would be signing everything basically. So that every deliverable that we put to a client has an, e, has an EY partner signature on it. And so they would be the final levels of review and challenge. Uh, and again, uh, you know, uh, talking about that spectrum between like delivery and business development, again, they're just one notch further over again into business development. So they would be the ones who would be Having the relationships with the most senior people in companies, so they'll talk to chief actuaries or CFOs or or other senior individuals, and they'll they'll be much more sort of talking holistically about whole programs of budget and activities that are happening and how UI can support on those, uh, and they tend to bring in bring in the most of our revenue at, at partner level. So that's the sort of distinction that we have of the of the grades in our team. Cool. And in your role as head of
0: life actuarial, is that referring to the more sort of people management, career development side?
1: In Scotland? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, so we have a team of, we've got about 26 actuaries in Scotland, uh, hoping to get up to 30 by the end of the year, by the time we have our sort of new grads come in and things. Um, and yeah, my, my responsibility is to make sure that two things, one, the clients in Scotland are getting what they need from EY, so... There are a number of clients who are kind of based up here, and so we want to be supporting them and making sure that they're getting the right conversations. That we're going out to see them face to face. That we're you know the projects that we're running up here are going well. And then the other thing is the team. So does the team you know do they have what they need? Do they have you know are they on the right career paths? Are they feeling motivated? Are they getting the right opportunities? Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's a sort of mix of of people and market that I that I look after up here. Yeah. Do you enjoy the people side? I do yeah I really like it yeah I didn't I didn't think I would actually but um the more I've sort of been responsible for for teams anyway uh, I do I, I, re- I really enjoy trying to make sure that you know people have a positive experience when they're working on the project um and so yeah it's something I really want to keep doing and that was you know I think maybe a few years ago if that role had come up to lead the Scotland team I mean I, I wouldn't have been ready for it back then but if it, if it had come up and I was ready for it I'm not sure I would have taken it say four or five years ago because I hadn't really appreciated the sort of that people sort of development and coaching role and, and I, I don't think I enjoyed it that much back then but it's something I've really grown into and that I enjoy now um, so yeah I probably to, to be honest in some ways I prefer that over delivery like I, I think there's a there's a um, there's a quote that I really like from Simon Sinek who's probably known to quite a lot of actuaries who does a lot of this sort of um leadership and communication and teamwork coaching and things and he said that leaders are not responsible for the results. Leaders are responsible for the people who are responsible for the results. And so like a lot of the time I think about my job that way now. So I'm, I'm not really responsible for, you know, all this technical analysis being correct because I can't be, it's impossible for me to do all of that and check every single piece of work and, and or deliver every piece of work. I'm responsible for making sure that the team understands what good looks like are motivated have the tools that they need to deliver you know are getting the support that they need if, if problems happen um and so you know my, my focus is much more on the on the people than it is on on the actual content these days and, and i enjoy that a lot
0: yeah yeah i uh, i think you posted about that on on linkedin i guess yeah i one of the reasons i got in touch was because of some of your more recent uh, LinkedIn posts there was another one that I don't have in front of me but it was some advice around um, I think you draw a line on a bit of paper and you put the things that you love about your job and the things that you on one side and you put the things that you loathe on the other side and help to to sort of use that as guidance so I I I, I could see you maybe implementing some of that stuff with your with your team.
1: Yeah it is, I mean the love loathe list is something that Uh, has actually helped me to love my job when I did say like I love what I do I mean a part of that is uh, from having done that exercise a few years ago and then tilting myself towards the things that I do I do really enjoy um so yeah there's and a lot of those you know those LinkedIn posts are interesting because they come they come from uh and some others who listen to this might have this as they move through their careers as well but like you know you get you get taught a lot about how to be a sort of good actuary. So you you can get taught a lot about how to you know deliver modeling work and write reports and 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 do all the sort of delivery pieces. But as you move up then you know that that then causes you to get promoted. And when you move up to the, the the roles where you're kind of leading people, no one really teaches you how to do that very well, I don't think. At least, you know, I've I've not had experience of great sort of coaching in that area, you know. And so you you're almost left a bit on your own as to how should you lead a team and how should you, you know, how should you deliver that? And so I, when I started to get into those roles, particularly sort of senior manager level within EY, when I was starting to look after bigger teams, I just had this huge like imposter syndrome. It was like, I'm going to get found out here. Someone's going to, you know, realize that I'm terrible at this. And I I had no idea what to do. And so it started this, um, I I just, I just started to try and learn a bit about it. So I I picked up books by people like Simon Sinek and others and a, a bit of a library of, just ideas around how to do this sort of thing. And 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 so I've I've kind of been adding to that library over time. I really enjoy learning that sort of stuff and trying to implement it and see kind of what works well and what doesn't work well. Um and so when when yeah, when I started doing a bit of sort of posting on LinkedIn, I just thought, well, I'll just share some of these things and see if some of them land because it's stuff that's helped me over the last three or four years. And as I said, I don't think people get a huge amount of that in companies you know and so you know if i can if even a couple of people read it and go oh that's interesting i'll try that then that'd be quite nice that if i've been able to sort of ripple that out a bit further and 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 help someone else um so yeah that's where that came from but i um if anyone i'm always interested in other sort of book or podcast recommendations if anyone has them then please please send them to me
0: yeah <laughs> um for, in, in, in terms of linkedin what's your relationship with linkedin are you sort of are you conscious that you want to put posts out? Are you trying to build a, a bit of a brand for yourself on there? Or is it just something you, you do every now and again?
1: Uh, so I, I was mostly uh, just a sort of receiver of LinkedIn information until maybe six to nine months ago. So I would just, I wouldn't post anything. I would just, you know, go on there and 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 see what what others were up to and mostly use it as a source for news. You know, like it's quite helpful if you follow the right people and the right news sources, you can get a lot of good information about your industry and stuff. So <clears throat> I was using it that way. And then at EY, we in our team, we decided to start doing a bit more of a campaign around certain topics. So we we wanted to just be a bit more visible in the market around some things. Um, and one of those things was identified was bulk annuities because as, as your, you know, as your listeners or pension industry actuaries will know, like the, the bulk annuity market has absolutely exploded over the last 12, 18 months. And so that was something where we said, right, well, let's get a bit more content and engagement out there with a network and, and see if we can, uh, you know, well, we'll just see what happens. It, it might turn into nothing, or it might, it might give us some more new opportunities and, and, and conversations that, that will help us. So. Uh, I was identified as a as a person who could put out some of that content. We talked a little bit about how that would work, and I actually ended up getting some LinkedIn training, uh, EY internally around, you know, how to write content in a way that is engaging, and even things like how often to post, and and you know how to make sure that you you're following the right people to do that and get get your messages out. So it started from there, and then they said to me. You know, I, I was sort of asking, well, what should I post initially? And they said, well, just post something that actually means something to you, you know, just start posting things that you genuinely care about. And so that was when I started to then think about, well, maybe these sort of the, the sort of leadership and communication books and stuff that I've been reading and some of the lessons I've taken from those might be a good place to start. And people might like reading that sort of stuff or they might not. And so what you'll tend to find is like, I maybe post once a week normally, and it'll be a mix of either something that I've read and that I liked and that I think other people would, you know, would benefit from, or it will be some, you know, big piece of news in the bulk annuity market that, um, again, I think people would find interesting, but I'll always try and add my own take on it. Like, what, what do I think this means? Um, And so, yeah, I've seen engagement steadily tick up over the last six months, which has been nice. I've had a lot of conversations and things that have come out of that. People have reached out to me to ask, to have, to have chats about stuff. And, and, um, and, you know, we've, we've picked up some good EY opportunities as a result as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's going well. I'm not, you know, I'm not super prolific on there. I'm definitely not posting every day. Like I say, it's, it's maybe once a week or so, but um, it, it feels, you know, it's a, it's nice for me because it's a manageable level of content. I don't feel pressured to put stuff out all the time, but also it does feel like it's getting engagement and people are, are interested in it. So, yeah, we're, we're trying, trying to keep that level of information going, I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I certainly enjoy your posts. And if anyone's listening, I'll put a link to your profile in the notes on the podcast, and, and hopefully they can follow you get right, in touch and, and so on. So specialism. So remind me, so is, is bulk annuities, that's your main focus? Do you do other things as well? Um, I guess what I'm interested in is, if so, how do, what was the journey like to becoming a specialist in, in the bulk annuity market over time?
1: Yeah, so Balkanunities is, is definitely my main focus. I, I mean, as always at EY, you, you, you do tend to get involved in a wide variety of stuff, so that yeah. it's not the, it's not ever the only thing that I'm working on. Um, but it, it's it's the biggest part of my portfolio, and it's the area that I'm sort of the most motivated and engaged by, and I try to spend as much time as possible in. Um, the The way it started, it was probably I mean it was more by luck than by skill. But in I, I did a lot of work when I started with an EY. On the Solvency II matching adjustment, which is probably not going to mean much to your pensions listeners, but your your life insurance listeners may know about that. But they, it was effectively uh, um, when the Solvency II rules came into force for insurance companies in 2016, it was uh, the, the matching adjustment was a was a increase that they were allowed to apply to their discount rates mostly for annuity business so that allowed them to hold lower liabilities and lower capital for that business and there was a lot of sort of strict requirements around how and when you could apply that and uh, you had to apply to the regulator to to be allowed to use it so I did a lot of work just by luck as I when I, when I was coming into the business in 2014-2015 all these applications were being constructed for the regulator to be allowed to use the matching investment from 2016 and so I I delivered on on several of those projects and became a bit of a kind of Internal, you know, SME on on the matching adjustment, mm-hmm. and so and that led into a wide variety of other kind of annuity type stuff. So I did an annuity pricing role. I ran an annuity pricing team for six months for one of our clients. uh I did some bits on assets, you know, investing assets in annuity portfolios. But it just became a bit of a kind of all rounder on on annuities. Um, and then we got the opportunity just before COVID um, to. Support a client to who was already in the Balkan community market, who was considering their strategy. So they were reviewing the strategy end to end of just should we stay in the market, should we drop out? If we stay in, how do we, you know, how do we improve our market share? What are the types of things we should be doing, should be, shouldn't be doing? You know, how do we change our focus, change our operating model? They wanted to do a kind of end to end review, and at the time, I was probably the the most well-rounded individual who understood annuities, which I know is not the same as bulk annuities, but it is, it, it, you know, it, it, it's a lot of very similar features on the regulatory side on on the insurance uh, in the insurance business. So I was put forward as the person who was going to run this project. Now I wasn't the only one. You know, we have lots of experts across strategy and operations and other bits and pieces that were being pulled in, but I was a sort of newish senior manager, and I was put forward as the the lead for for this. So I got to run that project and it was, I mean, I loved it. It was just a really, really interesting project, not only because of bulk annuities, but it was my first sort of proper strategy project. And I found out that I really love strategy work and that, you know, just thinking top level about how you support the customer and how you think about the market and where you're going to place yourself and what your competitors are up to and just all this really like high level helicopter view of your business. I just really, I really enjoyed that. And so that was a two-year project, and I got to see the full kind of end-to-end of bulk annuities, everything from, you know, how do you go out and actually talk to EBCs and trustees about your product, all the way through to kind of back-end administration for the customers, and 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 you know when they become individual clients through buyouts and stuff. So um, then uh, you know the market started to pick up when we started to get a lot more requests come in from clients for support for bulk annuities. And I just, because I'd done that project, I was just the natural person that was then going to support and lead these things. Cause I, had the, I then had the biggest knowledge across bulks. Uh, and as the markets got bigger and bigger, we've just grown the team, grown things out. And I've just maintained that role of, you know, just being across as much as I possibly can and, and trying to build, build things out for EY. So yeah, a little bit of luck at the start, but, uh, because it was something that I really enjoyed while I was doing it I was just super motivated to keep le- learning to keep working on it to keep finding new opportunities and we sort of built the team out from there
0: yeah yeah that's really interesting um if people work on the pension side they'll they'll have a you know a certain view of what it looks and feels like to to specialize in bulk annuities but the obviously what they're doing is is very different to what you're doing um you gave one example of the type of ways that you can help your your clients from a life insurance perspective, I guess, if I put it like that, and um, without giving away, I'm not asking for company secrets and stuff. But could you give sort of a high level overview of the different ways that perhaps you you do help the insurers? Uh, yeah,
1: so um there are a few ways that we would help bulk community providers. I'm trying to think of the sort of categories that we can bucket it into. Um, so, for, I mean, the the biggest sort of chunk of our work in bulk communities at the moment is new entrants. So, you know, there are a lot of companies who are thinking about entering this market uh, and, and because of the, the sort of severe increase in volumes and demand um, and potential unmet demand. So when we are supporting a new entrant, where we could be doing anything from, you know, if it's a brand new company that doesn't even exist yet, we could be doing things like regulatory authorization. So helping them to tell their story to the FCA and the PRA about their business plans and how they're going to run the business um, and to get them authorized. Uh, all, the, all And then you've got things like, what are you going to sell? So what types of, you know, are you going to offer immediate annuities deferred annuities are you going to offer all the different flavors of gmp equalization are you going to offer avcs are you know all these all these you know the bit the complicated bits around the benefits and yeah and and how you offer that um and so that that's the sort of strategy and proposition piece and then you've got a you know building the business so actually then moving on once you've once you've agreed and got authorized you have to actually set up teams you have to actually have a pricing team you have to have a Actual model to run, the, to run the numbers, you have to have a ledger, you know, all this stuff. So there's like general building of a business. So that's the biggest chunk of it at the moment is, is support to new entrants. For the existing providers, it breaks down into a few different categories. One is uh, sort of assets. So um, for the annuity providers, the bulk annuity providers, the, the number one reason that they are successful or not successful is their ability to find um, high yielding, high quality assets, I guess you would put it as. Um, particularly ones that match the liabilities really well. So EY has got an, a, a brilliant investments team that uh, that we work really really closely with, and and so we support bulk utility providers to find new assets and to then onboard them and, and manage them in their portfolio. So that's probably a big uh, you know a really big chunk of what we do. Um, the the second one is uh, capital. So you know the the, uh, the the you will have a a big capital requirement to hold over and above your liability. And the extent to which you can manage that capital better than other providers might mean that you're more competitive than them. So that could be things like reinsurance. It could be, you know, having a more sort of detailed model that allows you to kind of better understand your risks. It could be hedging, you know, use it, using assets to hedge out particular risks. So kind of capital management is another big bit of what we do. Um, I, I suppose a third bucket would be things like, I guess I would just call it like efficiency. So, how good are your processes, particularly when it comes to pricing? So one of the big constraints that the bulking utility providers have at the moment is just not having enough resource to quote for everything that they want to quote on because quoting is pretty resource intensive so to the extent that we can speed up their models or you know improve their governance or help them you know clean data faster, then they can turn in more quotes with the same amount of resource um so those, I mean, those are some of the areas. I suppose the other big one that's kind of current is IFRS seventeen. So the the kind of new accounting standard for insurance business. So we've had a lot of work with companies over the last couple of years to help them just implement IFRS seventeen and 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 understand that new accounting standard. And that's going to transition into um, now that it's in place and built. How do you actually? You know, make the most out of it. So, op- optimizing your results under IFRS seventeen or or your kind of tra- finance transformation type type work. So there'll be a, there'll be a lot of sort of business coming from that over the next year or two as well. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some stuff. Climate risk is the like, this big sustainability piece around climate modeling and uh, and some other bits and pieces. Um, yeah, I think those are the biggest topics. But yeah. there's there's so much going on in this space at the moment. You know, there's there's we're getting requests and fairly regularly for a wide variety of stuff. Yeah, and what, why do you, why do you love it so much?
0: Why is that your your area of choice?
1: I just um, I feel like it is something where so so I, I the reason why I had that early life crisis that I talked about earlier was I I figured out that I don't really like detail. I'm not a big and I'm not the sort of individual who likes to get right down into the heart of a model and understand exactly what's going on and spend a lot of time in, you know, code or something. That's never really motivated me. And I struggled with that initially because a lot of my roles were were like that. Whereas what I do like is, is this sort of strategy top-down, how does everything fit together? And if you move one piece, how does that affect the other pieces? And how do you balance off like customer with shareholder and you know, these types of really big questions. And so I think in the bulk annuity space, everything is so interconnected and there's so many bits that move across the whole business that almost every piece of work that you do ends up effectively being a strategy piece and thinking about how the whole business then is affected by what you're doing. So I just love that helicopter view of everything and and looking at it top down and particularly for the new entrants. I mean, the new entrants are coming in with, uh, you know, almost all of that work is like, blank sheet of paper, how do we build this business and what is the strategy? And so that's just really interesting to to get involved in those conversations. Um, so, yeah, that's probably why I love it so much. It's not, not specifically anything to do with the product. It's just that it lends itself well to these high level um, sort of top down view uh, conversations and pieces of work that, that I like so much.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you've worked for a life insurer and obviously you've spent most of your time in a consultancy. There may be people listening to this who are perhaps finishing up at university and starting to think about what direction they want to go in. Do you have any advice for people in terms of how they might go about working out what's the best environment for them?
1: Um, So as I have went through my career, I think that this The sort of enjoyment I've had in my job is much less correlated with the subject matter. It's much more correlated with the people that I get to spend my time with and so I think you know the 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 bigger is it's very hard to do from day one, but the the biggest tip I probably would give is to try and find people when you're going through your processes, if you're being interviewed or, you know, if you're getting a chance to actually speak to people who work in those companies, find people who you, you think of as inspiring, you know, who is it that when you, when you're speaking to them about, you know, ask them questions about what they do and whether they enjoy it and, and, uh, and, and sort of how they feel about their jobs and like really listen to those answers and, and, you know, the, the sort of vibe and feelings that you get back from that because, um, you know, the reason why I love working at EY so much is because it's absolutely because of the team. Like it is the people that I get to surround myself with are all, they're all brilliant. They're all really motivated. They're all, they all want to help each other. Um, you know, each one's super intelligent in their own ways and their own subjects. And so it's just a brilliant team to be in. And it would, you know, even if I wasn't doing bulk communities, you know, I, I I love this job before I was doing that. I would find some other subject to love that, but it's mainly around the people that I'm spending my time with. So, I wouldn't, I I think the decision, people can get worried about this decision of like, oh, is it pensions or is it life or is it investments? Is it consulting? But I actually think it should be, you know, just try and speak to as many people as you can from different companies and see how they feel about what they do and ask them about things like the team culture and how supportive people are of each other and and how well the teams work together and and those types of questions and, and try and make your decision based on that. And you're not going to make a wrong decision on day one because you can always, you know, you can always move company later You know, people are, people will not spend 40 years in the same companies anymore, but try as hard as you can to pick a team that you, you, you think is filled with people that are going to be nice to be around. Um, that's what I did in, with the standard life decision. Not that the, the other companies that I worked with were not nice people. They were great people. But I thought the, the sort of community element of having like more actuaries and, and and more people who were going through what I was going through was the decision that I made. And, you know, I was quite happy with that decision at the time. Um, but yeah, so I think trying to bring it back to people is probably the the biggest tip for, that I would do if I was doing things again.
0: Yeah. And, and almost linked to that, you mentioned towards the beginning of the conversation that when you were at uni, you were studying actual science, but you didn't really know what an actually did. And I think you said it took you two or three years to, to really get get to grips with it. Um I, I think it's still quite difficult these days. From what I can see you, you type a few things into Google, there are one or two websites that will give you a little bit of info, but I don't think there's a huge amount out there. Um can you help people understand what a life actually does? I mean, we've talked about a lot. So you don't need to go over stuff we've, we've touched on But Do you have a magic Few sentences that might be a bit more
1: meaningful than what's available online. You know, I, I knew I knew you were going to ask me this question as well when I was when I was making that statement earlier. I thought, <laughs> I'm thought i just setting myself up here to be asked what an actuary is, but um, <clears throat> the the so the, the definition that I've come up with for life insurance is you know so so life insurance is obviously a product. It's about the it's about the financial future of individuals. It's it, 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 specifically around around their. Um, you know they're big. They're big life events. So you know, do, do they have enough money for retirement? Do they have enough money for inheritance? Do they have enough money to, you know, put their kids through university? There's all sorts of products that are really built around saving and passing on money to either yourself, your future self, or your or your children or dependents. And so the actuarial role is is really to try and as far as possible look into the future and understand and help manage those risks and that is for the individual and for the company so you know what are what are the things that could determine whether you need to have more or less money available for all these goals that you have and how do you make decisions today based on how you see the world so how how risky do you want your investments to be and you know how all all those types of questions so it is it is all about the financial future of individuals and and trying to help understand and communicate those risks and help people make decisions um and so yeah so that that's how I see life insurance actuaries um there's obviously a wide variety of stuff that you can do within that umbrella and I think actuaries should be doing more things than they than they are actually I think that the skill set lends itself to to a lot more um roles than we sometimes pigeonhole or pigeonhole ourselves into but that yeah that, that would be a life actually for me okay um I usually finish with the same three
0: questions the first one I feel like we've touched on it's usually what advice would you give to someone starting their career and and I feel like you answered that um, a few moments ago. The second question is usually uh, something along the lines of how does the role of a pensions actuary evolve over time? You're not a a pensions actuary so maybe I'll change it slightly and just just ask you generally your thoughts on the future of the DB pensions
1: market. How's that that going to look do you think? Yeah I mean so the at EY, I guess our survey information is that something like 60 to 70 percent of all pension schemes are targeting an insurance transfer. That's where they would love, love to get to ultimately. Um, I, so I think, you know, if you're, if you're looking ahead at what does DB look like in 10, 15 years, I think it looks a lot smaller through the combination of runoff and transfers over to the insurance space. I um, personally, I don't think many people are on this bandwagon with me yet, but I'm quite positive about the idea of CDC and the the sort of that that new product is sitting as a hybrid between the kind of you know what we have now which is pure dc and what we used to have which was the db world and i think there's a lot of opportunity in that space to create really interesting products that help customers in a much better way than you know the, the kind of two extremes that we have now where the company does not want db and the individual doesn't really want dc but those are the only two options that you have um so i i do think that as time moves on cdc as an idea will grow and we will get some i will get some some products that sit in the middle and that db actuaries are probably much better placed to support that kind of risk pooling and risk management idea around pensions than that individuals on the life side It's probably going to be a bit of a combination of both but i i could see that the, the db pensions actuaries world would move more into the cdc space and and support that 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 growth so i'm optimistic about that I, I really hope that happens because i do think individuals for their retirement need more options than just dc which is all we have today um so yeah
0: i hope it moves that way yeah brilliant and then my final question is what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months and most people give a, a work example and also a, a personal one
1: uh so Work example, I'm really looking forward to seeing one of the new entrants that we're supporting starting to write new business. I think that would be brilliant. I'm I'm very excited about sort of helping a com- like a brand new company on a journey to to go into the market and to win something. Uh, so I really hope that we're able to get there in the next 12 months. That'd be great. Um, personal one. Uh, oh, that's interesting. I've got... Um, I've got an uh, American road trip booked with some friends for, for next June. And um, we used to do them quite a lot and then we stopped sort of four or five years ago. So this is a bit of a reunion. Nice. So we're going to go west coast of America and do a sort of two, three week road trip and do lots of national parks and things. So I'm very excited to go and do that again. Nice. Yeah. One
0: of my favorite things to do. I've only done it twice, but well, now that we've got kids, I imagine it'll be a long wait before I get to do it again, but I'd love to do another road trip at some point, And I'm, I'm very jealous and so Chris thank you so much for your time it's been such an interesting conversation it's nice to speak to someone who you know have have links to I guess my my other guests who 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 work on the pension side but you've clearly gone on a very different path and so much there that that people can learn from and and gain an insight to We, we touched on this earlier but if people would like to get in touch if they'd like to pick your brain fire you over some questions are you happy for them to do that and and is LinkedIn the best way
1: yeah absolutely yeah just send me send me a message on linkedin i'm always happy to have chats with anyone about the market or even just about actuarial careers and things so um yeah please do so fine Well i'll, I'll as i say i'll put a link in the in the notes
0: for for people to do that chris thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure and uh wish
1: you all the best great no, i really enjoyed the conversation thanks again
0: thanks for listening to this episode of actuarial people Please don't forget to subscribe and consider leaving a review. If you have any questions or feedback, or any suggestions for future guests, please contact me on info at actuarialpeople.com. This podcast is sponsored by my recruitment company, Turner Perkins, and you can contact me there at james.turner at turnerperkins.com. Hope to see you again.